Hello, hello, and welcome back to Organic Gardening for Beginners. My name is Jessica, the host of this show, as well as the blog Homegrown Food and Flowers, and I'm also a vendor at my local farmer's market. I've been gardening for over 20 years, and my mission in life is to help as many people as possible to get a garden going, learn the natural and sustainable methods they need to make it easy and fun, and really get the most of their time spent out there in the garden and finding joy because the garden is one of my favorite places to be. And I love to share that with others. So today we are kind of jumping into that theme of making things a little bit easier for you when you're out in the garden this year, because so far this month of January, we've been talking about garden planning and the some of the practices, the methods, the theory behind garden planning. And next week, we're actually going to start to dig into the nitty gritty of a seed sowing schedule. But today I want to share with you five mistakes I made when I planted my first garden because I think there are some common mistakes that may have made one or more of your seasons less enjoyable than it could have been. And so by pinpointing them and keeping them in mind as you do your garden planning, hopefully it will make your season that much more enjoyable and productive. So let's jump into it. All right, mistake number one that I made genuinely with my first garden. These are not made up mistakes. These are things that I've totally done over the years I've been a gardener. And the first one is planting too far away from the house. And a couple of little caveats here. I mean, like your productive vegetable or flower garden, something that you want to produce from from, or enjoy or interact with on the daily. Planting that too far away from the house can be a total roadblock to maintaining your garden, to planting, to getting out there. And so in my experience, my one of my very, very first gardens was when I was a young teenager, like 12-ish years old. And I planted our garden at the bottom of our really, really long driveway. We lived on five acres. And so the driveway was really long because the property was set way back. And it was, you know, a few minute walk to get down there. Which doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you're in the middle of cooking or it's rainy and you need to go check on your row cover or it's really hot and you need to get out there and water, it adds a barrier, like a friction point to know I need to go out and walk this three, four minute trip down the driveway or, you know, wherever you are on your property to get to my garden. And that makes it so, so easy to say, I'll do it in five minutes. I'll do it tomorrow. Oh, yeah, I need to get to it. And then you're getting ready for bed and you realize, oh, crap, I never actually did it. And this can totally be the difference between your your seeds that you've sown or your seedlings dying or not dying. Because think of, you know, you planted out this fresh row of direct sown lettuce seeds and they're just starting to germinate and the day happens to be a little bit sunnier than you had anticipated and they need to get watered so that the seeds don't dry out as they're starting to crack open with germination. And you put it off because it's inconvenient to get down to the garden or out to the garden or again, wherever it is. And you wait an hour and that hour is the difference between your seeds being okay if you had been there to water and then drying out because you waited that hour and the sun was just too strong for them. Or on transplant day, when you've got all these tender little seedlings going out and you need to kind of keep an eye on them. I know in as you're listening to this, it might sound like, okay, just three whole minute walk, woo. But really, it makes a difference. As we are on our property now, we have a hoop house midway through our property. We're on two acres and it's a long rectangle shape. So 
It's not super close to the house. And there are totally nights where I'm cooking dinner and I really want some herbs or some lettuce or whatever it is that we've got going right now in January. And I don't go get it because it's too inconvenient to go out to the hoop house. And, you know, it's dark at five o'clock here um, and go get the cilantro that I want or the lettuce. And it's like, well, I'll just deal with, you know, do a veggie that's in the fridge already. Um, And so keep the garden as close to the house as you can or as close to your busy area. Um, Maybe that's your garage, you know, where you spend a lot of time for work or hobby or exercise or whatever, you know, you're in the garage for. Um, Just try to put the garden as close to those spaces as possible so that it's as convenient as possible and efficient when you need to get out there to harvest something or to water or pull a couple of weeds. You know, if you have to trek to the back of your five acres to weed, I can almost promise you're going to say, I'll do it later. And then the next day comes and you say, I'll do it tomorrow. And it never happens. And then your garden gets totally overtaken. And you end the season thinking, well, crap, the the weeds got a hold of my garden. That wasn't very fun. So don't plant your garden space too far from the house. And of course, I want to throw that. I forgot to finish my caveats. If you're doing something like an ornamental garden or natives or an orchard or something where you're not trying to interact with it too much, then, you know, put it wherever because you're not necessarily needing to go out there for daily harvests or maintenance tasks um, or you're starting with shrubs that don't need daily watering like a direct sown seed would. So, of course, you know, kind of take your context in mind. But this was one of the big mistakes I made when I very first started out. And ever since then, I try to keep my garden, even if it means putting it in the front yard, but putting it where it is the most convenient and gets the most sun, Um, which in that one case was in the front of the house. And it worked out great because then I could just go out, pick peppers, pick lettuce, whatever it was, and make a meal from it. And it was fantastic. Alrighty, mistake number two that I have made, and I've sworn not to, and I even talked about it last week, uh, is planting what you don't actually like whether that's you don't like to eat it or you don't like to look at it or you don't like to harvest it, don't waste space on it unless it's serving a different purpose. A couple examples, and the one I mentioned last week was I historically plant eggplant because I like to grow it. It's pretty to look at, but I never eat it, ever. I never cook with it. It ends up in the compost every single year. And this year, I have said I'm not going to take up space or water or energy on growing eggplant when I never eat it. And I'll just buy it from the farmer's market when I'm there anyways, if I decide I want to make baba ganoush or roasted eggplant or whatever. Same goes for you. If you hate tomatoes, don't grow tomatoes just because they're for sale at Home Depot. Or if you think cilantro tastes like soap, but you want to grow a salsa garden, don't grow cilantro. Grow something else that can complement your salsa because if you aren't into it, it's really easy to ignore it or prioritize something else over that other plant. Now, again, with my caveats, if you're planting it for pollinators or just because it's beneficial to uh, to the soil, for example, you can plant um, beans. Those are really good at fixing nitrogen into the soil. And maybe you don't love beans or you think they get too tough too quickly or they're a pain in the butt to pick, you know, whatever your reason. You could, in theory, still plant a couple of bean plants because they're good for the soil. 
And then just don't harvest them, but don't feel guilt about that if you only planted them to serve a different purpose. Uh, I don't love certain flowers that have like the shaggy cactus shape to them, like there are some dahlias that look like that or some zinnias. And so I don't plant them. I plant the flower style that I like because I don't want to go out to the garden and think, man, you are so ugly (laughs) when I get out there uh, because that's how I respond to those types of flowers. So prioritize your space, prioritize your time, your money. Uh, Don't budget for a plant or a seedling or a packet of seeds that you're kind of eh, whatever about when there are literally thousands of other things you could grow and that could make your season more fun, more enjoyable, more productive because you actually like what you're growing. Number three, Big mistake here is not experimenting with things just to see what happens. As always with my stories, I think I even mentioned this in another episode. I'm putting in an experimental bed um, here on our property where it's a cut flower production style garden that should be about 10 feet by 40 feet when it's all said and done. And I am trying some new varieties that I've never grown before. I am planting directly in the ground instead of in raised beds, even though we have a ton of gopher and vole activity on our property. And so our food garden is all in raised beds with, um, what's it called, hardware cloth on the bottom so that the, the gophers can't tunnel through and damage the plants. But I'm just dying to know, like, what would happen if I plant directly in the ground? Would they eat everything? Would some things be safe and they don't like them? Um, we have a heavier clay soil that holds a lot of water in the wintertime. This particular area doesn't flood or get boggy the way some of the other areas on the property does. But I just want to see what can I get away with growing directly in the ground as opposed to a raised bed. And that can, excuse me, that can inform the rest of my plantings as, you know, the years go on. If I know, hey, I can plant these five flowers in the ground and the gophers aren't going to eat them or these two vegetables and the voles will leave them alone. And maybe I don't need to put in raised beds every time I want to start a new garden area or, you know, some other sort of barrier type bed that the they can't get into. Um, and so to make it to apply it to you, experiment and see what happens kind of referencing another past episode, I was talking about how there's always next year. Keep that in mind when you're planning and don't let that stop you from trying new things, from experimenting, whether that's a crazy variety that you want to grow or something that you tried to grow once before and you didn't have success with it. Try again, put it in a different area in your garden, start it earlier or start it later or water it differently than you did before and just see what happens. Because if you fail again, there's still always next year. And sometimes experimenting looks like playing with your climate. For example, um, there are obviously some plants that do well in warmer areas and some that do better in colder areas. But see if you can push those, your push your growing season to grow something that maybe is slotted for a warmer climate than what you're at. And just see, you know, can you start it earlier indoors and get it to maturity in your short season? Can you plant it in the shade if you live in a warmer climate and it'll produce for you? Um, For example, I never grew rhubarb in our years of living in California because it's not really the climate for rhubarb. And that would have been something that I could have experimented with. And there were other reasons I didn't plant it. Like I knew we were going to move and rhubarb is a perennial. 
But you kind of get my gist of don't hesitate to experiment with new growing techniques, new soils, new seed varieties, new plant types. There's always something to try. Um, And actually, if you kind of want to see this in action, there's a really good YouTube channel called Regenerative Gardening from Blossom and Branch uh, Flower Farm. And the the gal's channel, um, she does so many different experiments. It's super cool to watch where she'll try different soil mixes, different planting methods, different soils uh, or not soil um, seed starting methods and report back on her results. She does a great job when I flip through her comments. Um, people are always appreciative of the experiments that she does and the results that she shares. And so that's a great example. I'll link it in the show notes to her channel. Um, Brie is her name. And So just apply that to yourself, you know, pick maybe something that you've never grown before that you want to experiment with or something that you think might not do well in your climate and just give it a shot anyways and see what happens because it might be a resounding success and then you learn something new. All right. Mistake number four that I made and really paid for and I have, have since learned my lesson and I've talked about it a ton on this show is not mulching. Before I realized the power of mulch, I would leave the soil around my plants bare, just as I'm sure many gardeners do, because I know not everybody mulches. And the soil would get dried out, it would crack, weeds would sprout, I would water and the water would just kind of float across the top and not saturate down into the soil until I'd been watering for a few minutes. And all of that changes when I started mulching. And I think mulching can be a make or break method for your garden. I don't say that about a lot of things, but I really think that mulching can make your season so much easier. And if this is your first time listening to the show, first off, hello. And second, mulching means putting a protective layer over the top of your garden bed. And this is usually an organic material like wood chips or straw or leaves or grass clippings or wool or cardboard. It can also be a synthetic material, which I choose not to use, but people do it with landscape fabric or black plastic. Um, There are actually some biodegradable landscape fabrics like Bio360 that will decompose after a season, but I don't have experience with it. Um, But basically, you are trying to put a barrier between the soil and the environment. So that way, when the sun is hitting the soil, your plant roots have some insulation from that mulch. It smothers weed seeds. It retains water. Once your soil is warm and then you mulch, it can help keep the retain the heat a little bit better. I love mulch. I love wood chips and uh, leaves in particular, but I've definitely used grass clippings over the years when that's what I had available. And so by not mulching, it's way, way easier to get totally inundated with weeds and to have to water more frequently because your soil is drying out that much more quickly. So not mulching was a huge mistake. I mulch religiously now um, with whatever material I can get a hold of. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I am, I've read a study once before how mulching with wool can be really effective both as an antifungal because, um, or antimicrobial, I forget now which. But I mean, that's how it is naturally on the sheep. And that's why people make sweaters and stuff from it, because it has anti, I think it's antimicrobial. In any case, it's supposed to be a really good mulch. And for tomatoes in particular, because it bounces heat and light back up towards the plants, which tomatoes really appreciate. 
So I am um, scrounging around seeing if I can find a local source for cheap or free wool that nobody's using because it's either dirty or damaged or whatever. They're not going to make anything from it. And this is one of my garden experiments because I'm in a rural area. I'm hoping it should be easier to find some wool this year. And there are other uses for wool in the garden. Um, But uh, mulch can make your season easier. So if you haven't tried it yet, do it. And if you want to learn more about it, listen to episode 12. I talk about that one all the time where I mention several free sources of different mulches, why I like using them, where you can try to find them for free, uh, and how to apply them to your garden. All right, number five, this is our second to last, well, my second to last mistake, was not staying on top of maintenance tasks. And it can be, again, so easy to say, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it in an hour, and then that hour goes by and you still haven't done it. Whether that's weeding or watering or harvesting, or if you go on vacation, um, It can be pretty shocking to think that your garden's, you know, all set for you to be gone. And then you come back two weeks later. That's the longest I've left a garden. And it's insane how much growth has happened in that two weeks. And this is a summer garden, not like obviously a winter garden where your tomatoes are just laden with fruit and things have gone to seed when you didn't expect it to. Or, you know, you've got those monster clubs of zucchini, even though you could have sworn you picked everything before you left. Um, so not staying on top of your maintenance tasks can be really overwhelming, especially if it's one of your earlier years in gardening, where once you kind of put it off and things are a little bit behind and then you think, well, it's so behind, I'll just do it later. And then it gets more behind. And then you kind of just throw up your hands and say, I'm not interested in this anymore because there's just so much to do at that point with the weeding and the watering and the trellising and the cutting back and the harvesting and the replanting that it just makes you want to give up. So again, another past episode, number 11, where I talked about how to make a garden chore maintenance schedule that you can actually stick to, to, you know, kind of pick out some of those critical tasks that you need to do every day or every week. Um, primarily watering. If you throw your mulch on there, that's going to take care of a ton of your weeds. But even little things like trellising your tomatoes as they grow so they're not just sprawling across the ground and rotting or the bugs are getting to them. Um, because the it's kind of one of those uh, ounce of pre- prevention is worth a pound of cure moments where if you keep your plants under control in the sense of giving them what they need and staying on top of weeds and watering, it just pays dividends later on in the season so that you can avoid that overwhelm and that feeling at the end of the season of, I'm ready for winter, I'm done, I don't want to do this anymore. All right, last one for today. Again, a mistake I made in one of my first gardens, actually several of my first gardens, was not including flowers. And again, if you've listened to any number of episodes of this show, I've mentioned companion planting and flowers 100 times because it is one of my favorite, favorite, right up there with mulching, gardening methods that I think can solve so many problems. And I say this because flowers bring in pollinators, they bring in beneficial insects, they break up your plantings so that you're getting more biodiversity in the soil and up above, obviously, in the vegetation and whatnot as well. And personally, I think they make a garden look really pretty and really happy 
when you're out there. And so if you are coming at this from the mindset of why would I grow flowers? I'm not going to eat them. Or have you looked at grocery prices lately? They're so expensive. I'm not going to dedicate any of my garden space to something I can't eat. Then I would still say toss in some edible flowers because you can eat those. And they're going to do you the double duty of pulling in pollinators, pulling in beneficials. So if that's you, where you don't want to give space to something that's not a food crop, then think about growing things like nasturtium, bachelor buttons, sunflower petals are edible, zinnia petals are edible. Um, They don't taste wonderful, but they are edible. They won't kill you. Um, Pansies are edible and those are very common on like salads and as garnish and and whatnot. Uh, Bee balm, borage is another one that is a real workhorse in the garden and has edible flowers, really cute little purple ones that the bees go gaga for. And if you haven't grown flowers because you're intimidated, then there are also a handful, more than a handful of flowers that you can start with that are super easy to grow, such as sunflowers, cosmos, again, nasturtiums, calendula, marigold is very easy, very, uh, a very big workhorse in the garden, especially when used as pest control. So don't, you don't have to be intimidated to grow flowers and you don't have to you know, have a dedicated flower bed, you can easily, and I would encourage you to, plant them in with your vegetables or with your herbs because everybody gets along in the garden bed and it's an overall net benefit to have everything mixed up together. And as with many of you, I'm sure, my first several gardens, I didn't include any flowers. It was pure vegetables and, you know, I had pollination and it was totally fine and I harvested. Um, but I would say at least the second half of my so far gardening career, every garden is packed with flowers, packed with herbs, packed with veggies because I like to mix everything in for all those benefits that I had just described. Um, so if you have never tried growing flowers or planting them not in a separate flower bed, but instead mixed in with your veg and your herbs, then I would highly encourage you to give that a shot this year. And I have a ton of episodes talking about it. Um, Some that are clearly labeled as how to use companion planting. I did not write down those episode numbers. So you can scroll back up and track those down. Um, But in any case, those are six of the mistakes that I made when I was first getting started. I actually have a feeling that I said five mistakes earlier, but we ended up with six. So you get a bonus mistake in there. Um, And of course, this doesn't mean that I don't still make mistakes. Of course I do. Um, You know, I just killed a a flat of microgreens because I forgot about them and they sprouted and I forgot to water, Um, you know, and it happens. Doesn't matter how long you've been growing, you have some dead plants hanging out behind you. Um, So it doesn't stop me from keeping going forward, though. All right, that is it for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about seed sowing uh, and planting schedules and how to kind of line up your season so that you know what to start when. This ties into the PDF that I made for you guys a few weeks ago that is also available in the show notes. It's a free download with a seed starting and transplanting dates so that you can use your first and last frost dates to figure out when to plant. So we're going to not necessarily like dive into that PDF, but I'm just going to explain some of the overarching principles of planning your garden and your uh, growing season and figuring out how long it is um, to kind of get you started because, you know, January is incredibly heading, you know, on the second half. Uh, time is flying already. 
And I want to make sure that you are starting your season, whatever your zone is, and your first, you know, planting time that you've got kind of a runway to know what to plant when so that you can totally maximize your year. I am jonesing to get out in the garden. I cannot wait. I have started some seeds already and uh, I just can't wait to share more. I will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.